Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a joy it is to be joined today by Sarah Manguso, who is the author of eight books, including a couple of my really favorite ones, including Ongoingness. She's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Hotter Fellowship, and the Rome Prize. Her work is regularly featured across the New York Times Magazine, O, and the New Yorker, among others. She grew up in Massachusetts and now lives in LA. Very Cold People is her first novel. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Maris. I love that already um, I feel like I'm having a good time, even though <laughs> Very Cold People, not all the way through, the best um, experience for people who are looking for fun. And, and so let's start out in ongoingness, you wrote about how writing a diary is making a series of choices about what to omit and what to forget. And I feel like in the context of very cold people, you're doing something related, but you're writing fiction. Actually, yeah, no, that, that, um, that awareness of yours is something that I did not really have um, while I was writing the book. Um, <laughs> And um, yeah, I mean, the, the point that I was making in writing ongoingness is that um, I had this terrible anxiety about not being able to record everything and to therefore lose some of my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I didn't really feel that I had completely processed my life until I had um, translated it into language. And that anxiety um, was sort of resurfaced and re remade itself while I was um, figuring out how to write very cold people. And the, the, the central problem for me about writing cold people is that um, I initially thought of it as being yet another essayistic autobiographical nonfiction book of which I had written several by then, felt very comfortable with. And yet I kept running up against this problem of having some of the ingredients of a nonfiction book of a, you know, a fully realized, you know, multifaceted com complex narrative nonfiction, but I didn't have all the ingredients. And so I, um, you know, I, I started with memoir. I started with what I remembered. And when I kind of ran out of um, material for this structure, I uh, kind of, I know I made a lateral step into sociology and started reading all of these books about, um, you know, in between racial identity and racial expression in the 20th century in New England and the kind of provisional whiteness that so many immigrants and children and grandchildren of immigrants um, were kind of forced into when they, uh, you know, walked on stage um, in this very white place that had been, you know, settled 400 years earlier. And, um, you know, while that topic is so interesting to me, and I think I'm still going to write about it, particularly because I was the first person in my family who was born white, according to the dictum that, um, you know, three generations, this is, I think Teddy Roosevelt is the one who um, instructed the U.S. Census that, um, you know, non- non-Black non but non-white immigrants, like people from Italy, people from Ireland, Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews, um, like my parents and grandparents, 
um, could not be fully white until three generations after immigration, which is this amazing formula. I don't um, think I ever knew that. I didn't either. I mean, I, I had this idea that like, you know, there was this kind of competitive whiteness where, whereby, you know, the, the longer that you had trod um, this, you know, well-trodden ground, the whiter you were and the better you, the better you were, the better, the better kind of person you were. And, um, but, you know, certainly it wasn't spelled out to us. It was just sort of, you know, gently, it had like, you know, settled like this film over the culture. So all that is to say that um, I realized that the book that I needed to write, Very Cold People, it, it wasn't about race, well, except incidentally. What it was about was sexual violence, trauma, and rage. And um, I mean, I could go on. You know this, yeah. you're a woman, but like uh, when, you're, when you're a woman, women's accumulated sexual trauma and rage is like a physical force in the world that you can feel. And that is what I wanted to write about. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's such a blessing that now when we think about the pilgrims and the Mayflower and we, we actually have the vocabulary to say, oh, these people displaced an entire yes. indigenous population um, which yeah, they destroyed which a culture. To be like that that chain reaction that that violence begets violence begets violence. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. That and that is that is what I was trying to to get at in the book. So once I figured out, I could um, I could fill in the form. If I made it fiction, it suddenly became possible. Yeah, and so. One of the things that I, I will take uh, as being autobiographical is the idea of my husband is a Jew from Boston mm -hmm. and it's only in living with him have we realized that we have grown up differently. I will go to a doctor in any circumstance mm -hmm. and he's a little bit more reserved. Well, what's, what's your background? Just so I can I am also Jewish. Yeah. Start and where did you grow up? New Jersey. Oh, so, so you're essentially a like New York area Jew yeah. as opposed to a New England Jew. Yeah. Very different. Decibel level even. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's how you're, oh, that's so interesting. I mean, it, that's how in, powerful and how insidious New England culture is. It can even like turn Jews wider. <laughs> but speaking, you know, speaking as one, I mean, I was yeah. raised Jewish in a, um, you know, an interfaith um, household, but um, yeah, more to say about that. But yeah, no, I, I would see Jews, um, you know, presented in the culture as like the Jewish stereotype and think, Oh, you know, like, like the, the loud New York Jew, like just being, being obviously Jewish. It just, it just wasn't really, <laughs> there were, there were a few people in my family who, who were kind of unapologetically into Barbara Streisand and, you know, like all this stuff, but, um, but more often than not, we blended in. To dwell on bad Jewish stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> to be called cheap feels to me like a major insult and yet Ruth's parents 
are pretty oh yeah withholding yeah. I mean yeah the, they would never have called themselves cheap though that's the thing like sure you've heard the phrase Yankee thrift I'm sure mm-hmm. so Yankee thrift is willed it's essentially willed poverty but twisted into an, a virtue so that immediately creates a condition in which all suffering is is experienced as virtue mm-hmm. by the sufferer And it also makes it really easy to abuse people and to make them feel like they're experiencing virtue or they're like performing virtue. And so you feel not just virtual virtuous, but special. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, like there's, so it's this, the subjective judgment of whether a certain behavior or a certain kind of withholding or abuse even is a, um, you know, it's, cheapness um or whether it's virtuous yankee thrift you know reasonable um good uh you know frugality uh they're uh you know like the perceptions of who got to be white it was just it was just all over the place like you know everybody had their own idea of like what was what was cheap or bad Mm -hmm. and what was virtuous or frugal smart I associate that kind of feeling virtue with Catholicism, virtue Mm. and suffering. And even though Ruth's family is not Catholic, they certainly live in the center of American Catholicism. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. And um, I don't even know that Ruthie would have been able to tease apart the differences between Protestant Yankee thrift and immigrant Catholic thrift. Um, but there were all, you know, there was definitely, you know, there were shades of distrust across all of those religious and cultural lines. Nobody, nobody thought that anybody outside their clan was doing anything right. Um, but yes, that sort of virtuous suffering that, um, you know, sainthood, even the, the idea of sainthood, um, it, it just kind of very neatly, um, fed into the existing mechanisms by which it was, it became really easy to abuse people because you told them that they were experiencing um, something lucky, that they were sainted, they were special. All of, all of those, all of those um, setups are just um, wonderful cultures for abusing vulnerable people. Yeah, and you remind the reader a couple of times that Ruthie's father is an accountant. Yeah. And, and, and I think she even says at some point, not poor enough to be called poor. Yep. And yet she, her bath water is measured and mm-hmm. her mother uses a very spare amount of plastic wrap. And it seems like every morsel is meted out um, coldly. Yes. And, and so what happens when, when that happens with love and protection? <sighs> what a question. <laughs> well, again, the, the real, um, the true information about whether, again, whether or not, like wh- who is to say who is poor, everything is relative, mm-hmm. um, you know, the scale there were, there are, um, Ruthie's friend Amber is definitely poorer than she is. Mm-hmm. Ruthie's friend Charlie is definitely richer than she is, but that doesn't leave Ruthie really with enough information to judge whether or not she's poor. 
Um, and similarly, she has an abusive, withholding, neglectful mother who doesn't provide sufficient medical care, who doesn't touch her daughter, who gives her spoiled or, um, you know, not uh, appropriately nutritious food. Um, she's always, yeah, she's always cold. She's not clean. She isn't like told that she's allowed to bathe enough. Um, but at the same time, Rosie would have never perceived that as, um, you know, the necessary conditions for her to tell herself that she's poor. Like she's not, Amber's poor. Amber's poor, but like Amber's happy and Ruthie's not happy. Like Ruthie doesn't feel safe at home. But I mean, it's part of, part of what I really wanted to write about in the book is that these, um, it's almost like the way the uh, CIA's uh, information processing has been explained to me by, by a friend who had work, worked in Intel a really long time ago. So, you know, there's top, there's secret and then there's top secret. And then beyond like past top secret, it sounds like this like incredibly crazy thing where it's just like three people in a room, but it's not. It's just these like, it, it, you know, information above top secret is just held in these um, in these cells, right? And so it's just like, you know, four or five people per cell know certain types of information. And not, you know, these aren't like privilege over each other. They're just separate. Mm -hmm. And so they're safe. And so they can be used against everybody who doesn't have the information. That is what growing up in Massachusetts felt like. Because I mean, certainly there must have been somebody with an omniscient perspective on all of us girls who were growing up in the 70s and 80s and like, you know, who was truly in an unsafe situation and, you know, who, who might have been in a truly safe situation, but we didn't have access to that information and the kind of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you kind of ask these questions about like what Ruthie might have known about herself in the context of this culture um, because you know that's exactly it it's this bizarre sense of not it's it's like a state of unreality in which you can't really you don't have all of the information to diagnose yourself or like you know diagnose the way that you are in a family or in a town or in a in a school um, there was just this sense, not just of like coldness and quietness and muteness that sure definitely overshadowed everything when I was growing up there, but there was also a sense of like, there was so much information missing. There were so, there were so many gaps and omissions and it was like, you know, it wasn't until I tried to write about it that I realized like, A, that's the problem. That's, that's why I haven't been able to write about it. And um, B, that's the real that that's also the reason that growing up, everybody felt vigilant amid these looming omissions, this information that we didn't quite see have. Yeah, and tell me about that as from from the point of view now as a, a writer of fiction. How do you convey to a reader that Ruthie is missing a lot of information? I don't know that I necessarily, um, I don't know that I, when, when I write, I don't, I don't really think, okay, I have to convey A or I have to convey X. 
I'm going to execute technique Y in order to convey, right. you know, like I, I'm sure some people work very efficiently that way. I just, I can't, um, all I can do is just imagine Ruthie as this whole person. And then I can just kind of see what she can see. That's why it was important to me to use first person too, because I wanted I wanted I wanted Ruthie to see things that the other characters couldn't see, but I but more than that, I wanted the reader to see things that Ruthie couldn't see. And so, you know, using first person in that way, and it's sort of, I don't know, it felt um, it felt more possible, or it felt felt like the way to do that was to just imagine that I was Ruthie. You know, this sort of I was just listening to the Sochil Gonzalez interview that you did, and really enjoyed it. And one of the things that she said that stuck with me is that she imagined her. Uh, protagonist who also has some things in common with mm -hmm. Sochil as a kind of avatar or kind of like um, what did she say like this avatar of her at, if she had not gone to therapy yeah. <laughs> so it's this it's this sort of like you know it's it's familiar it's like it's it's like a sibling self that you can inhabit in order to um, you know in, understand a perspective that's different from your own yeah and, and not completely different <laughs> yeah there's some similarities um but i do feel like there are moments in ruthie's narration where the reader is I, i'm speaking for everyone but i can just say um where i as a reader was was jolted out of myself and it's kind of you kind of can't predict when it will happen. And so I, the reader, was then vigilant as well mm. because I didn't know when something disturbing would happen. Yeah, you have this feeling of unsafeness, but you don't feel so, you know, you're not, um, you're not in like combat. Like it's, <laughs> no. it's not, it's not just, okay, you know, the trauma is, is happening right here, right now. And it's going to keep happening. It's yeah, it's, it's, um, it's something disturbing happens. And then you don't know when the next disturbing thing is going to happen. That is Massachusetts. <laughs> and yet there are moments of joy. Um, yeah that we feel along with Ruthie. And one of the things I wanna talk about a little bit is just, you really brought me back to sticker books and charm necklaces and friendship pins with made with beads. My mom used to give me a, I had an empty Cool Whip container with mm -hmm. just beads and beads and it was it was all the really girly stuff yeah i mean it's definitely an artifact of that time before you could go online and order something from far away i mean you could you know there were catalogs i guess you could order things from far away but um you know it it wasn't just um it wasn't just because we weren't rich, you know, me and my friends in public school, it wasn't just that we weren't rich. It's just, we were living in a time when the material objects that were around us and available to us uh, were generally 
you know, they were, they were very local. Um, you know, I guess the Cool Whip had been trucked in from the <laughs> Whip factory. Um, and so, you know, the, the grocery store was a, a site of, um, you know, accumulation from different places, but like, yeah, more often than not, when you wanted to like make a thing, you'd like toilet paper rolls, safety pins, beads that you would collected over your life. I had a, a, I had a basket full of button. It was a basket with a lid that was also a slightly larger basket. Um, but it was my grandmother's and possibly even my great grandmother's button collection that my grandmother had added to and my mother had added to it. And I, I mean, my son has it now. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it was, um, I kind of missed that. And I think in a way that that just the culture of that time, the, um, I was born in 74. Is that, were you born in the seventies? Yes. Okay. All right. You very nice skin. I wasn't sure, um, <laughs> but, um, I do, I do miss that about, about being a seventies kid, about just, um, not being overwhelmed by content all the time. And, you know, if you want a sticker, you can literally have any sticker ever made. If you just go onto Etsy or go onto, you know, some, some other shopping site, you know, we would go down to Smatterings on Washington street and whatever Mrs. Grossman stickers by the yard were still there. We could have, Mm -hmm. and that was enough. And Mm -hmm. it, it, what it, that's not, that wasn't part of the thrift. That was just, um, it made decision-making so much easier than I find it now. Um, but you know, in the same way, it it was not completely unrelated to that. Um, you know, that, that Yankee thrift that we've been talking about. Yeah. I I mean, and it, and it's such a good comparison because you see Ruthie enjoying these things and, when you first talk about her family going to the dump to look through things or going to the discount produce aisle or going to a tag sale, there's the possibility that that could be fun. Like that going through discarded stuff and looking for gems could be invigorating. And yet. (laughs) Yeah, no, she describes it as such. She um, you know, she both understands that it might be slightly pathological, especially when she talks about her parents buying what they believe to be antiques that are not, that are knockoffs, that are valueless. Um, you know, she also, at one point in the book says, you know, it, you know, don't think that it, it didn't accrue to me too. You know, I had this, this, um, instead of having a swatch watch, which was the, the, the status symbol, um, Ruthie gets the, Tropicana watch that she, you know, sends in box tops from the frozen concentrate that uh, she and her family drink. And she, she does kind of like, you know, give a nod to the feeling of pleasure of, um, you know, maybe not having the expensive version, but she has a version that nobody else had because nobody else had the discipline to collect all of those box tops and, you know, wash and dry them and send them and, you know, get the watch. And, and so, um, and so, yeah, and, and those moments of joy that you brought up too are essential to understanding Ruthie because the way that she survives is that she, you know, she's grown up from birth. She is a person who knows that she is going to have these little opportunities for joy, for warmth. Um, you know, I, I think of her as picking up the red leaves from the ground as she walks home from school as this kind of um, natural gathering and accumulation of warmth. And she, um, you know, she sits 
right against the radiator, which heats up slowly and it turns her, her back red and it, it stripes her skin. But, you know, I, I get the, I get the sense that it like, it doesn't hurt as much uh, or, you know, it, it may hurt, but the, you know, the actual literal warmth that she's getting is just as, you know, it's more valuable than avoiding having like, you know, your, your skin um, scalded a little by this, uh, by this old fashioned radiator. And um, so, yeah, like Ruthie, um, Ruthie does notice things that are, um, that are beautiful and that kind of deliver her from the greater feeling of, of living in Waitsfield for a moment. And, and she learns to model some of her behavior anyway, um, based on her friends. Tell me a little bit about Amber B and Charlie, A, B, and C. A, B, and C. And um, <laughs> I didn't necessarily start out that way, but um, it, is, it is such a, a tidy and helpful uh, metric to talk about them. Um, yeah, so the the way that I wanted to write about all of these girls, I wanted to make them on the one hand, so similar that anyone could stand in for any of the other ones. And in, and in the way that the culture holds them and treats them and kind of meets out their fates, they are interchangeable. But from the point of view of Ruthie, who doesn't necessarily digest all of the information that she's able to perceive. Um, she, she does, um, you know, nonetheless perceive them as belonging to these like slightly different mm-hmm. caste gradations. Um, so Amber, um, Amber is poor. She's a car on cement blocks in her front yard. She lives on a dirt road and she wears hand-me-downs and has like, you know, she's an aunt when she, you know, by the age of like eight or nine, she's an aunt. And um, B is a friend, uh, also another of Ruthie's friends who is, um, you know, the, the, the I, I would say B kind of leads with her innocence and maybe her, her stupidity a little bit. Um, which is just the flip side of her vulnerability and, and total kindness. Like, so, um, yeah, so, so B is kind of, um, you know, you find out at least two thirds of the way through the book, you find out that all of these girls, um, Amber B and Charlie, who is, um, uh, you know, after her mother remarries, uh, Charlie's stepfather, uh, it, you know, it's revealed that the stepfather is doing terrible things and B's father is maybe doing terrible things and um, Amber's uh, brother or half-brother is doing terrible things. So all of these girls are getting violently touched and violated. And um, it's, uh, it's all there is though, like in the, in the culture. So it was important to me to, you know, to, to say like, you know, it's not just because these girls all are poor. It's not just because these girls are all in the same clique. They're not like, you know, Amber and Charlie are not friends. Like they, they don't really intersect. But the, the thing that was important was that there was, um, there was no control group. Like this was, this was, the abuse wasn't the story. The abuse was the setting. 
for the story. It was, it was the background. And, um, you know, in, in the beginning, I thought, well, maybe the story is just this accumulation of all, all of these different stories. And then, um, and then I just didn't, didn't really feel interested enough in the book. And that's when I realized like, oh, you know, that's because it's not the story, it's the background. And the story is actually, um, the story is what happens to Ruthie and how she manages to escape. It's, it's Ruthie's escape narrative. And she, she has to do some really um, bizarre, um, not just, ex, you know, she doesn't have to just make external choices that, that put her into danger, but she, she goes through this like metaphysical um, reincarnation as, as the character Winifred in order to even think about the possibility of escaping. So let's talk about Winfred. And, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and her background and what draws Ruthie to her. I'm, I would love to talk about Winifred. I, I have to confess that um, Winifred, the Winifred section of the book is the first book or the first part of the book that I wrote. Um, and this was back when I thought maybe the, uh, the, you know, Very Cold People was going to be a multi-generational drama of um, people living in this town. And, um, you know, at, as, as before, when I, when I thought the story might just be an accumulation of stories of, of, about things happening to adolescent girls, um, you know, I, after I'd been writing about Winifred for a while, I got bored. And so, you know, that for me is the trigger for like, okay, um, it's, there needs to be some further thinking about what, what the capacity of this book is. Um, and I then realized, you know, Ru Ruthie had kind of been welling up as the most interesting character in the book, much more interesting than any of the other girls. Um, I realized that Winifred didn't have to be real. So Winifred, um, you know, it, in, in the book as it exists, um, in, uh, Winifred is a character who built the house that Ruthie and her parents move into when Ruthie is an adolescent. And in a way, Ruthie and her family are making a step up because they're moving into a better neighborhood. And, um, and yet they're only able to do so because Winifred died in the house and nobody really wants to live there. And, um, and in addition to that, when they move in, they move into a neighbor, they, they move from a neighborhood where everybody's um, white, but of immigrant, recent immigrant stock, and into a neighborhood where their next door neighbors are Lowell's. Um, and, uh, you know, they're one of the founding families, along with the Cabots and the Saltonstalls and the Emersons and the Hunnewells and, um, and really just doesn't. I mean, not only does she not belong to this group, but she, she, it's really, it's basically illegible. Like the, the, all of the sociological facts are illegible, um, mostly because nobody in that neighborhood would ever think to articulate them, especially within earshot of somebody like Ruthie. So Ruthie does know that there was a woman named Winifred who built the house a long time ago and that the woman had been a Cabot and that the woman had married a kind of R.E.V. Um, you know, recent immigrant with money, Mr. Fish. And so Winifred Cabot became Winifred Fish. And Ruthie's like aware enough of the fact that there's a difference between being a Cabot and being a fish. 
And she thinks she likes to think about Winifred because it, you know, it is a curious thing to move into a house that only one person, you know, one family had lived in ever. And um, she thinks about Winifred and she likes to, you know, it's, her idea of Winifred as a Cabot, as a sort of a person with agency, a person with power, a person with a power that can't be taken away because it, 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 it inheres in her, her very name. Um, that, that power of a Cabot, Ruthie kind of allows to, you know, morph in her until it transforms into Ruthie's idea of what a woman of agency is, which is a woman who is uh, someone who's, who sexually predates upon boys, which is simply the reverse of what actual people of agency are in Ruthie's time, mm-hmm. i.e. men who are able to, uh, you know, sexually avail themselves uh, upon women and girls. And so Ruthie has this 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 fantasy about uh, Winifred kind of just discovering that she was she was she wasn't imprisoned she wasn't completely imprisoned by the culture of Waitsfield because she's able to predate upon a Lowell an adolescent Lowell boy and it's this identification that Ruthie has with this imaginary Winifred that I think kind of like marks the metaphysical origin of Ruthie thinking of herself as someone who could potentially have agency in fact, enough agency to make her escape from this town, from Waitsfield. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested in how much of Ruthie's life, adult life, you've contemplated. Is it in in your mind? Do you do you know more about what's happened to her, or is it just enough to know that she's no longer there? Oh. This is such a great question for me right now because I just finished Elif Bottomman's second novel, which is coming yeah. out presently, I, uh, either or. And um, you know, when I when I when I heard that Elif had written a a, a, a second helping of you know of um, the story of Celine in college, and that you know it it was limited to Celine's sophomore year, I thought, oh my. God, how how could how could that possibly be good when the idiot is just so it 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 you know it's just itself like it it you know it has a beginning and an ending that it doesn't seem like the first episode of some show. Um, so I yeah I've been thinking about that. Um, I don't think I want to write any more about Ruthie, but um, yeah, you are right. Like the the very end of the book um, has a, I mean not to give too much away, but <laughs> the pacing of the book is relatively consistent up until the very end when it speeds up dramatically. Mm-hmm. This is the same shape as my book, Ongoingness. And I think I was just so taken by that shape in which you know, there's fairly consistent pacing. And then the end is just, it just sort of becomes airborne, goes into orbit on the last page. And um, you know, the end of ongoingness, um, I die and my offspring die and everybody, you know, like everybody who ever knows me dies and generations pass in like a paragraph. 
And um, I, I don't know, I think in a way I found that so pleasurable that I, I wanted to do it again <laughs> in fiction. I guess it's kind of my, this is how I, how I end book. Well, no, I mean, this is how I end some books. Um, <laughs> but no, it's true that, you know, Ruthie, under, Ruthie ages decades on the last page of the book. And um, I just, I, I, I really liked that she suffered so much in all of the preceding pages. Um, I really liked just making it okay for her to be allowed to just fly away and be safe for a long time. Love that. Thank you so much, Sarah. And before we go, I'm gonna ask you for some book recommendations. Okay. I first wanna recommend uh, a book that just came out a minute ago. It's Sheila Hattie's new novel, which, um, you know, I, I'm a fan of all of her work, but this, this new book, it's been interesting to see the way that it's been, that it's landed in, in uh, critically, I, I think, I think the majority of people are reading it seriously and writing about it well. Um, but it, some people are, 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 are kind of like, you know, isn't this like too philosophical? Don't you have to be like, um, you know, Freud or Kierkegaard to write philosophy like this? Like, isn't it stupid if a woman is doing it? And then um, I spoke with Michael Silverblatt the other day and he's, and um, uh, one of us brought up Sheila's book and he said, you know, I think, I think this is one of the great books of our time. I, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so far beyond anything that anyone's doing. And I, and I thought, oh God, thank God, finally, at least somebody understands that, um, you know, what she's doing this, with this book is um, it's, 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 it, it, you know, it's almost, it's indescribably wonderful. Um, should I make some more recommendations? I don't know what the rules are. There, there are no rules. Oh boy. I mean, okay. that, that was a really good, I just downloaded the audiobook because I, I saw that she reads it and I yeah. listening to her. So. Yeah. She's got a wonderful voice. Um, yeah, I guess, um, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll recommend one other book. Um, this is somewhat recent. This was within the last five years, but, um, it's one of the best books I've ever read, per perhaps the best book I've ever read on, uh, how it feels to be a girl and, uh, an adolescent female person living in a patriarchal culture. And that is Miriam Gerba's amazing book, Mean wonderful book. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.